And in this world, when you look around you, tell me, what do you see? You see stress? Everyone's stressed. You see conflict? Neighbor to neighbor? They can't keep peace? Friendship to friendship, they can't keep peace? There is constant division. And the more you press toward this world to do business or to make friendships or even in service to your community, what do you see? Despair, loneliness, pervasive loneliness, and utter darkness. But let me tell you, that is all you will see if you look to this world alone. But in the darkness, God says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. And Jesus affirms this when he said in John 8-12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Dear God, to you we ascribe glory. The one who is worthy, the only one who is worthy, may you be glorified today in the hearts of your people, on the lips of your people, through the actions of your people. Today, God, we celebrate your birth, Jesus. On this earth, the coming to earth, the rescue mission, in so many ways, you showed us God. You showed us yourself. You showed us the scripture. You showed us God the Father. You showed us humility before God the Father and how we are to have a posture of humility before Jesus and God the Father. How we are to submit ourselves before you, God, in all things. All things you have commanded us. Let the hearts of your people be humble before you today in worship. And God, may you be lifted high on the praises of your people. We praise you, O God, the one who is worthy. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one who came to earth for us. Amen. 
Isaiah 9-2 counts that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Folks, before the creation of the world, our God who knows all things outside of time, something we cannot even conceive of outside of time, had a plan for mankind. God knew that mankind would fall in sin. He is not surprised by your sin. He knew that you would be a sinner. And he knew that I would be a sinner. And he knew that your parents would be sinners. And your great, 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 great grandparents would be sinners. And that we all would be subject to sin's consequences. And therefore, he knew the sentence for sin was death. Unless unless God intervened, unless God who created all things, including mankind, also initiated the rescue operation for mankind, unless God did what only he could do and what would compel God to do this, an intense love. Mediocre love is not really love. A passing moment of emotion, two seconds, it, it's not genuinely an emotion. God is so passionate that he charted the course. He made the plan together with God the Son, and he did something absolutely miraculous. Almighty God touched down on earth in the form of man. Jesus came to earth in the fragile biological form of man. The Jews knew the scriptures. They knew the prophets. They knew Isaiah. They knew a Messiah was promised by God to come and to set the captives free. They figured, they wanted, they interpreted some of the scriptures in the way that they interpreted it to think that he would be a conquering Messiah to defeat the occupying forces of their present day situation. But the Jews were often enslaved because of disobedience to God's law. They were often enslaved to neighboring nations, whether it was the Babylonians or the Egyptians or in their fights with the Assyrians, or their occupation by the Romans at the time of Jesus. But Scripture prophesied of God's power. Scripture prophesied of the Messiah's love. But most all of them simply did not expect the Messiah to come the first time in humility. They expected riches and honor while he was poor and lowly. They expected him to sit on an earthly throne as a, as a sign of force and power. But he didn't sit on much more gracious a chair than the feeding manger where he was laid as a newborn. Jesus would say that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head meaning he was very 
a poor and meager means. And also he was itinerant. He was constantly on the go in his ministry. He didn't specifically have a home per se. And this is true to God's character and God's interactions with the world. From what you expect when you look at the world's ways, expect God to do the opposite. Because we know that he uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Those who are wise in their own eyes in this world. Who think that things need to be a specific way. And that there cannot be another way because only their way of thinking is the right way of thinking. The man is so puffed up in and of himself that he, he must be right and he is the only right. Because the thoughts and actions of this world are largely done in opposition to God and his law. See, pride has that effect. That's why God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. God requires surrender. Therefore, he opposes the proud. And the proud tend to push God away. But God will do the opposite of this world. It's not because God is reacting to this world. It's because this world started in opposition to God. After the fall, mankind went on this alternate trajectory where they pushed God away and said, God's law, I don't want it. God's standards for holiness and righteousness, I don't want it. God's standard for living, I don't want it. Worship of God, I don't want it. So therefore, the world is opposite of God. Therefore, God acts opposite of the world, not because God has changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when you look at the world, expect God to do the opposite. So when God moves in these days, expect him to do so not with a big show, not with a big sign. Expect him to do it with humility. Look at the life of Jesus. From his birth in the small, humble town of Bethlehem. What good could come from Bethlehem, they would say, to childhood, which we don't really have Jesus' childhood recorded save for very short passages. All of those days that he lived on earth, all of those years of humble means. And then we look at his preaching at the Sermon on the Mount, listening to the following words. And first, let me say to the world, the world would give advice instead like this. Instead of what I'm about to read, they would give advice like this. Aspire for physical strength because the strong get what they want. Or aspire to be famous because the famous are so good. They're of their own glory and their own fame and their own popularity. And therefore, they can have more material possessions and more influence and more power and more social status. So aspire to be famous. But Jesus didn't say that because God's law does not agree with those ways. God's law, in fact, is just the opposite. What I just said, that it requires surrender. It requires humility. Listen to the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew 5, verse 3. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus is drawing the distinction between what the world values and what God values. Who he is, what he says, and what he commands. Jesus makes it really clear here. God's standard for mankind. The world disregards it. The world shuts God out. The world says, no, I'm going to pursue my own sinful desires apart from God. And Jesus said there that they... So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those opposed to God, they persecuted the prophets whom God had sent. Why did he send the prophets? To correct their sinful ways, to bring them back to obedience before the Lord. And what did the people do to the prophets? That's right, he just said it. They persecuted them because their hearts were evil. Because they desired evil, because they desired sin, because they wanted to live for themselves apart from God. And to this world who values self above all else, Jesus was born in a lowly manger. And the life of Jesus on earth, as he grew and as he started his ministry, he was constantly submitting himself on earth to glorify God the Father. Jesus did not regularly or even much at all acknowledge that he was God and worthy of worship. He specifically acknowledged his deity a couple of times, but he didn't come straight forward and say it. He patterned for us how to think, how to act, how to preach, how to make much of Almighty God. And along with that, how to refuse the inner voice in us, which desires sin, which desires pride, which desires to make much of ourselves. And even to obedience to the cross, Jesus was following God's plan because he was submitting himself to God. He humbled himself before God. God himself went to the cross to die on the cross on our behalf because of the plan, because he wanted to be obedient, because he loves us. 
He loves you so much that he went to the cross to die on the cross for you, for me. For the purpose to rescue all men and women who would receive his invitation. Jesus had an intense love for the Father and an intense love for mankind. And that's what kept him fully committed to the plan, fully committed to humility in a world of sinners. Even though he was neglected, even though he was disregarded, even though he was mocked, even though he was ridiculed, even though he was persecuted, he was still committed to humility. And Jesus was showing us all in that the way back to reconciliation with God. Jesus was also showing us in that, that he took on human form, like us. We can all relate to him in that. Scripture says that he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. We can relate with him in that. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned, so we cannot relate in that way. But he was tempted just like we are tempted. He walked the same road that we walked. Being around other sinners. Being tempted to sin. Being lonely. Being sad. He struggled with human emotions just the way that we struggle with certain human emotions. He rode the highs. He rode the lows. Jesus can relate to what you're going through right now. You're not alone. If you don't know Jesus yet, if you have not submitted your life to Jesus yet, you don't have to be alone anymore. Jesus can be your constant companion God reaches down. Jesus came to earth. And when he was resurrected to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to be in us so that we never, ever, ever have to be alone again. And I think that's something so tender and so pointed to each person's heart in our hearts is that we don't have to be alone. We might think we're alone. We might feel like we're alone. But for the Christian, we don't ever have to be alone again. And we're not when God is with us. But we're human. And when you think that no one cares, when you're all alone, when your friends have gone away for whatever reason, maybe you're at a time in your life when you don't really have friends right now, God still cares about you. And God still loves you. And he hasn't left. And he's right there. You don't need an intermediary on your behalf. You don't need someone to go to God on your behalf between you and God. God's invitation is right here for you. You can talk to God directly in prayer. Isaiah 43.2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. God speaking, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
God has such a tender heartedness for his people. God has this intense love for his people. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see God's covenantal commitment for his people. You see God's great heart and his great desire and his great compassion and his great forgiveness and his great restoration after they have disobeyed him for his people. God is committed to his relationship with his people. Because when you're weak, God knows you're weak. When you sin, God knows you sinned. And God knows that he loves you. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. 2 Peter 3.9. And in Psalm 46.1, God says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or your translation may say, an ever-present help in trouble. God is never asleep, like every other human in your life, your friends, your spouse, your children, your parents, what have you, the other people in your life that build your community. They need sleep. You need sleep. God never sleeps. God is watching over you. God is seeking you. God is desiring you. God wants to have that direct personal relationship with you where you walk side by side through your life because God wants to reveal to you more of who he is and God wants you to confess before him more of who you are. He already knows you completely. He wants to have a regular conversation. The best friendships are built on communication. And the more communication you have, the deeper the friendship is, the deeper the relationship is. Good marriages are built on communication and honesty and confession and repentance and forgiveness and compassion. And so is your relationship with God. And God wants to walk with you every single day at every single moment. And that's why he sent Jesus to earth. So when you think no one cares, or when you're all alone, and for those who in those moments don't try to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, who don't simply put on a happy face when their world is crumbling, who don't think the answer is just to put your nose to the grindstone, work harder because now you don't need anyone else ever. For those who instead see their great need for God, God is ready to save them. God is ready to not just save them, but to change them and to be with them forever. And for the believer who gets downtrodden or sad, feels betrayed, maybe you feel depressed, or you're scorned, or you're abandoned, or you're simply alone. The Lord God is your comforter and your strength. The one who has said he will never leave you or forsake you in Deuteronomy 31.8 will do just that. Jesus himself went through immense suffering when he walked this earth. Paul went through constant persecution and hardship. David did. 
Job, the prophets, the disciples, the rest of the apostles, I will confidently tell you this. For those who have abandoned all things to follow Christ, this is actually the expectation for your life in terms of the symptoms and the consequences of living a life sold out for God. Hardship, persecution, loneliness, sadness, but it doesn't stop there. The reason that we follow God is because God has called us and we want to answer. God has said that he is the one who has created us and we want to know our creator. God has sent Jesus to earth to be our savior and we want to know our savior. God loves us incredibly, immensely, passionately, and we want to know a love like that. We want to know a love like that, which is not like any other love in this earth. We want to know a love like that. Because he will never leave us. And we desperately want to be in a relationship with someone who is constant, who is always faithful, and who is always with us. And that's the story of Christmas. Jesus welcomes us back to God. Jesus welcomes us as a constant companion. He is almighty God, but he is also always with us. In every storm of life, whatever may come, God is there. Always ready to listen, always caring, always faithful. It's not a surprise to you that I say that the world goes out of its way to not acknowledge Jesus in Christmas. And if you look for this now, you'll see it everywhere. If you didn't know it before, now that I said, if you look for it, you'll see it everywhere. The Christmas-themed branding, anything bearing his name, bearing the name of Christmas, and yet missing any acknowledgement of God himself. Everything from community Christmas events to so many movies on TV, even Hallmark movies, Hallmark Christmas movies, and many, many other traditions and celebrations and things leave out the only one who will change someone's life utterly and completely, and that is Jesus Christ the Savior. I'm longing that more Christmas movies would actually have it about. They seem so distracted in the plots of these Christmas movies. That Christmas is just about garland, or Christmas is just about being back at home. No, Christmas is only about Jesus Christ. The one who died so that they would not need to die. The one who reaches out his hand to save any man from sure death and utter eternal torment. The one who offers repentance, which is the only chance for rescue in a world that is dying. This is Jesus. So do not miss the essence of Christmas. Christmas is of Christ. 
Do not miss the heart of what it means to be a Christian. These are married. It is of Christ. It is in Christ. Christ is in the name. Christ is in the name of Christmas. Christ is your strength and your shield. Out of his great love for you, he created you. And he created this world for you to live and to move and to breathe and to have your being. And he tasked us to steward our lives for a reason. It's to glorify him. And he wants your heart and he wants my heart. And God is the victor at the end. Read Revelation. You will know it to be true. This book that was written 2,000 years ago. And the prophecy of 2,700 years ago will also come to pass. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government, government, politics, everything that seems to make the headlines and stay in the headlines and to be an utter weight against us, the government shall be upon God's shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Again, this was written 2,700 years ago. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is intentional. God is purposeful. God is passionate. God has a plan. And in the end, God will restore all things and Jesus will sit on his throne, ruling the earth. This is the one that we celebrate at Christmas. And Jesus arriving in a lowly manger was just the beginning. Lord God, your plan is great. Your salvation is mighty and it is complete. And when someone is saved, they are saved because you are always faithful. And the great sacrifice of sending Jesus to earth and the great sacrifice that he made on the cross in obedience to God the Father secured salvation forever. We don't have to wonder we don't have to doubt. We don't have to live by the world's rules of what is important. We live in respect for the governments which you have established on this earth. But our ultimate allegiance and our primary allegiance in our hearts and on our lips and in our mind is God alone. Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger. Jesus Christ of Christmas. God the Father who sent Jesus to earth of Christmas. Oh God, the reason of Christmas is you. 
and the reason that we celebrate is you. May all glory be to the name above all names, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in the book of Genesis.